As humans, we often struggle with context when it comes to our faith and regularly fail to apply the Word of God in our daily lives. Verita's podcast is a weekly Bible study led by Rev. C.B. Samuel and through it, we try to understand and locate the roles we are called to play in the world we live in by delving into the teachings of the Holy Bible. We welcome you to join us in learning more from the Word of God and in learning how to live out meaningful lives as Christians. Uh, today we start a new series. We completed our study in the, on the Jesus-centered uh, spirituality or uh, Christ-centered spirituality in the book of Hebrews. And uh, I felt as I thought about the fellowship and uh, what is the appropriate teaching, uh, I felt very strongly that uh, I would like to look at the subject of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not looking at uh, from a perspective of a doctrine, but uh, the aspect of uh, the centrality of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so uh, the way I'm going to do it is uh, today I want to look at one particular chapter in the New Testament. But most of the, my studies on on Holy Spirit would be based on the Holy Spirit in the book of the prophets, because uh, it is there that we find the original uh, teaching, which formed the foundation for uh, the expectation of the Messiah, because when uh, Jesus uh, came into the world or before he came out into the public uh, space, uh, it was clear that the people of Israel were uh, looking largely for someone who would be the one who would bring the Holy Spirit. I am not sure whether they had an understanding of what would happen, but they were waiting for the Messiah and there were many who claimed to be the messiahs, you know, because there was 400 years of silent period, as we know, between the last Old Testament prophet and the coming of John the Baptist. And during that time, there were many who claimed to be messiahs, and most of them were political, you know, political claiming that they would bring freedom from the ruling uh, nations or rulers. And uh, so, but the people still waited for the Messiah to come. And when John came uh, baptizing people and announcing that he was the voice in the wilderness, another imagery from the Old Testament, which uh, was a very clear indicator that uh, he would be the one who would prepare the way. And so when people went to him, their main question was whether he was the one or uh, whether he was the messiah and john's answer was very clear his answer was that you know he was not the one he was very clear about that and in fact he went on to say i baptize you with water but the one who comes after me will baptize you with the holy spirit now that was a clear uh, indicator of how they would have to recognize the Son of God or the Holy Messiah uh, in terms of the uh, ministry or 
the revelation of God being fulfilled. And so, and that for the people was enough answer because they knew that when the Messiah comes from the Old Testament prophecies, that one of the things would be that God would be present with them. God will be with them. Uh, I'm again not sure whether their understanding was that God's presence would be the presence of the Spirit in each one of them or whether it would be the presence of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God in the context of the nation. Because such a thing would, was never something that they experienced in their history because the Spirit of God was basically on individuals, <laughs> starting with the time when Moses uh, was called into leadership and then uh, he had, uh, you know, people who were involved, who took over, or at least people on whom uh, the responsibility of leadership was divided by Moses and the Holy Spirit came upon them. So it was very clear that the Holy Spirit was more uh, a spirit of God that was given to people to fulfill their task of leadership or a task which was appropriate to what God was doing. Because the first mention of a person on whom the Spirit of God came on uh, was basically a person who was used by God in the construction of the tabernacle. So that is where we find the, the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon that person. So it was not so much a position of leadership alone, but a position where a person was doing something that was in line with what God had commissioned. And, but most of those who had the leadership role are the ones on whom the spirit is seen to have come on. You know, it doesn't mean positional leadership uh, like the king. So definitely there was on Saul, there was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And later on, we have David on whom the spirit of God was present. Uh, but the prophets were definitely people who spoke in the authority of the Spirit and who experienced the Spirit in their life. And uh, especially when we know the prophets like Ezekiel, who talk about being lifted in the Spirit many times. So the Old Testament understanding that they would have shaped their uh, the people's expectation may not have been that uh, the Spirit would come on individuals but definitely they knew that the Holy Spirit would be given. But there's enough evidence in the Old Testament to believe that uh, this coming of the Holy Spirit meant God's words like, um, you know, I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you the Spirit would have, and to some extent, I'm not sure how it was interpreted, but definitely there is a feel, there is an understanding that it is an individual experience of the Spirit's presence. And of course, the prophet Joel said the spirit of the Lord will come on people and young men would prophesy and all those things. And uh, so that was the expectation. And so when John told them that the Messiah will come and he will baptize them with the spirit of God, there was that expectation that when the Messiah comes, not only will the kingdom of God be inaugurated, but also the fact that the presence of God would be upon them. And uh, Jesus, of course, uh, started off his ministry 
by the words in Nazareth where he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news. And he goes on to talk about what other things. And very clearly, Jesus uh, acknowledged that the authority, the power in his ministry and the direction were all those on which were from the spirit of God. And so it was very clear that Jesus himself acknowledged the spirit directing all that he was doing. And uh, definitely he did that with the knowledge and wisdom that God had given. And he talks about the father and the son. But def uh, it was very clear that the spirit of God was very central in Jesus' ministry. And in fact, he told in John chapter 7, he says that, uh, you know, whoever believes in him and who is thirsty, if they come to him, they will, he will give them to drink and out of them will flow rivers of living water or eternal, which will well up into eternal life. That's what John 7 says. And John writing about that particular words of Jesus of that particular event says Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given but Jesus, because Jesus was not a glorified, talking mainly about the death of Jesus and his resurrection, which was that point where uh, the whole thing moved from Jesus and uh, Jesus ascended in heaven. And then Peter in Acts chapter 2, when he talks about, explains to people as to what happened on the day of Pentecost, the main thing that he says is Christ has been exalted and the result or or the indicator or the uh, the proof of the fact that jesus was vindicated and exalted in heaven is the giving of the holy spirit and uh, so then the spirit of god was given and and what they experienced in acts chapter 2 was the fact that the spirit of the lord had come upon all of them so the Spirit of God is a very important part of the Christian uh, understanding. But more than an understanding is very central in our Christian experience, the experience of following Jesus. Now, we all come from perhaps different traditions. And in each of these traditions, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit seems to be more a doctrinal difference. Of course, the charismatics would uh, would talk about the Holy Spirit in not simply in terms of doctrine, but also the experience of the Holy Spirit. And the non-charismatic groups, uh, you know, basically have, I think, an opinion about the Holy Spirit, an acknowledgement about the importance of the Holy Spirit. But the, the emphasis on the experience of the Holy Spirit is usually very less and uh, so i think it's good for us to look at the scripture to see what the bible actually talks about the holy spirit and as i said i want to look mainly at the old testament too because that as i said is foundational in understanding what god had in mind when he told the people of israel that he will pour out his spirit on them and Jesus taking it on from there and the early church acknowledging that presence of the spirit in them. And I believe irrespective of what denomination we come from and what uh, ideology or what theology that we have, 
I think it is very important for each one of us to understand and experience what the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit because uh, it is not just a theological uh, issue but it's actually a very important part of our experience and uh, so I'm not going to look a lot today at the New Testament uh, but I want to look at one chapter in the New Testament and Romans chapter 8 perhaps is that one chapter which uh, would tell us a lot about the Holy Spirit and uh, Romans chapter 8 is acknowledged by many Bible scholars as uh, perhaps one of the most favorite chapters of many people you know the Romans chapter 8 of course each of us would have certain verses from Romans chapter 8 which we like but as a whole chapter I think we cannot uh, deny the fact it is one of those great chapters in the New Testament. There are verses in the New Testament which are popular like John 3.16 and other things. But if you have to look at a chapter which holds our attention, it is Romans chapter 8. And I think it is a good chapter to spend our time looking at what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. And uh, in this particular chapter, the spirit, the word spirit itself comes so many times. In fact, one Bible commentator says it is never found as much as it's found in this chapter than in any other chapter of the New Testament. And so uh, if you, you're talking about the Holy Spirit, definitely Romans 8 would stand out. And uh, so it's one of those great chapters in the New Testament. And it's all about the Holy Spirit and our own life or our own Christian life. Now, I'm going to look at this. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, I want to look at it because, uh, you know, in terms of the important, significant things about what the Bible says here and about the Holy Spirit. Now, one important verse uh, you know, the whole chapter, as I said, is important, which, very, which we need to think about is verse 9, where it says, you, however. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to those who have experienced Christ and who therefore have an experience of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about, you know, the fact that we now have moved on to a different level of our relationship with God. We saw that in Hebrews. Now, he says here, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. There are, there's no mincing of the words. The words are very clear. It says here, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, it says they do not belong to Christ. You know, we can talk about a lot of experiences we have had in terms of uh, knowing Jesus, you know, our engagement in many different aspects of Christ's mission. But he's not talking about whether you are involved in, you know, spirit uh, kind of you know spirit engage spirit kind of engagement he talks about if the spirit of god lives in you you know the spirit of god lives in you and he says if anyone does not have the spirit of christ 
they do not belong to Christ. It's something of an experience of the spirit, which is a guarantee that we belong to Christ. Now that's very central. He's not talking about whether you know about the spirit or what you acknowledge about the spirit. He's talking about the spirit of God living in us. And if we do not have the spirit of God living in us, he says, you do not belong to Christ because it's not about acknowledging Christ, but it is about belonging to Christ. And when and the early church knew that, especially the disciples of Jesus who followed Jesus and heard Jesus talk about so many things about the kingdom of God and the father and all those things. When Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, and he said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, another comforter, another advocate. And when that happened, it was a mark that they now earlier, they belonged to Jesus as Jesus disciples who walked with him. In what it was a kind of a belonging to a group. But now this was totally different. Acts chapter two gave them a new sense of belonging in which it was no longer we walked with Jesus kind of relationship, but actually we walk with Jesus. We are in a relationship with God. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, you know, what happened with Jesus was that we have an access now directly into the most holy place. And here Paul writes and says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. They do not belong to Christ. And so I think the importance of uh, experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want you to get confused, as many people would say, if you have an experience of the Holy Spirit, then there have to be manifestations, you know, manifestations of either the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, those are all important aspects. But that's not what we are talking about. We are talking about a relationship with God, which has trans for, translated itself into an experience in which, as Jesus said, my father and I will come and abide in you. You know, he says we will come and live in you. You know, that is very important. And we want to, I want to look at Romans 8 because it talks about why the Holy Spirit. Because if in you know, Romans 1 to 7 is where Paul does an expanded uh, presentation on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In terms, you know, starting with Romans, uh, you know, 1 itself, you know, when he talks about the gospel as the power of God for salvation for everyone. And then he talks in chapter 1 and 2 about all of us needing that salvation experience. And in chapter three, he talks about what happened. And then in chapter four, he deals with this whole issue of, uh, you know, faith and works, uh, you know, in terms of salvation and says that salvation is by faith and faith alone and uh, very central. So in Christ, he would say that there's something has happened for us, happens for us. That is our old, our own whole standing with God changes. And now we stand, as Romans 5 would say, that we are justified. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, since we have been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in the death of Jesus, something happened. And that means we have now a relationship with God where we are no longer condemned to die. But because of what Jesus has done, we have been saved. But the whole issue is that, you know, if we have that experience with Jesus, where we have acknowledged him, accepted the work of Jesus, and therefore we stand justified, then what is the place of the Holy Spirit? You know, it's a transaction which was complete by itself. So all that we have to do is to recognize that Jesus died for our sins and we accept that and that's it. The story is over. That means we are justified now and then there is no need of the Holy Spirit. But the New Testament is very clear that God has given us the Holy Spirit and the transaction that Jesus did on the cross is something that allows us to enter into the presence of God. But what happens is God wants us to have more than just a paper transaction where we stand justified. He wants us to be transformed. And that is why the Holy Spirit has been given. So he says here in Romans 8, in verses 1 to 4, therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in uh, Romans the first six, seven chapters, he talks about this new experience that we have in God. And then in chapter seven, he talks about the struggle that we have in spite of coming to know Jesus. The struggle which is so well captured in these words when he says, you know, in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. I'm looking at chapter 7 of Romans and verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And I know that good it's i know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature for i have the desire to do what is good but i cannot carry it out for i do not do the good i want to do but the evil i do not want to do this i keep on doing now if i do what i do not want to do it is no longer i who do it but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul is talking about a real battle that a person who has justified, who has been justified in Jesus continues to have. 
because we have already been justified in acknowledging the work of Jesus on the cross. But there is a major problem. The problem is the battle continues. And then he says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so he introduces the whole area of what happens when the Spirit of God comes in. We struggle in this area. We struggle. Yes, we know Jesus personally. But the problem is that does not help us to live. Our, even our desire to be Christ-like, our quest for holiness. None of these things are things that we desire. But there's a big gap between what we desire and what we are. And that is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. The Holy Spirit comes into play because it makes it possible for us to live the kind of life. Yes, Jesus in his death and his resurrection definitely has provided for us an entrance into the relationship with God. But to live up to God's requirement, that knowledge doesn't help us. The knowledge doesn't help us. If, yes, we come to Jesus and his work on the cross is complete because everything that has hold, held against us, as we saw in Hebrews, uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, has been paid for. But he says, what is difference about Jesus and the other priests is that the earlier worship did not have the ability to cleanse our conscience, did not have the ability to make us perfect. But now Jesus has sacrificed once for all, entered into the most holy place. And what he did was to give us that Holy Spirit who makes it possible for us to enjoy the perfection that God has in mind. And that is why the Holy Spirit is very central. Unfortunately, what happens is with groups that talk about the Holy Spirit so much, they do not talk about that particular transformational role of the Holy Spirit. They talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was not given to us basically to give us gifts. That is not what the scripture understands. Yes, the Holy Spirit is a very missional spirit. And definitely it gives us gifts in order to accomplish the mission of God. Definitely the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is to transform us. And that is what Paul would write here. And I think it's so central because we know in coming to Christ, our sins have been forgiven. But the problem we have is not so much the sins that has been forgiven alone but even the fact that we struggle with sin i remember reading in one of the writings of gandhi about his own struggle he said he was in south africa and there were there was a missionary couple i think their names were mr and mrs Coates. that's what he refers to them very often 
and they were very keen you know perhaps they had a ministry among uh, you know foreigners in south africa i'm just assuming because gandhi talks about you know them taking him to church and then taking him to their house for lunch and they constantly talked about jesus they talked about jesus to gandhi and gandhi talks writes about it he really had a high respect for mr and mrs coates of course he had a problem with the christian the practice of christianity that he saw in south africa in the churches he refers to that uh, but he was very impressed with the life of uh, mr and mrs coates and the way they related to him and others and but he struggled with the theological press, you know what they talked about he says they were nice people I, i'm not quoting it verbatim but what he says is that uh, i think they would have had a discussion on sin and uh, what uh, you know mr coates i think talked to gandhi about was that in jesus death we are uh, released or we are forgiven uh, for the you know the the penalty of sin yeah that's right that's what he says the penalty of sin is what we have been forgiven from and coates went on to say because gandhi says about his own struggle and coates went on to say that one day we will be released from the presence of sin when jesus comes again and uh, he says till then gandhi he was telling gandhi that the struggle with sin is something that is very real and gandhi writes and says that uh, and i says mr coates was a good man perhaps he says i think he said perhaps he didn't know his scripture well i'm not sure what gandhi meant by it but gandhi said my struggle was not about the penalty of sin because i can't do anything about it i have already sinned and it's totally left to the mercy of god for me to be forgiven and uh, the presence of sin one day you know is not something that you know he had a disagreement about he said yeah he said eventually perhaps sin would be destroyed but he said my real struggle is with the power of sin over my life you know while i am here and uh, when he told that to mr coates mr coates was telling him that uh, you can never find a freedom from that you know one day you will have the presence of sin taken away and gandhi says about how disappointed was his quest you know not being not finding an answer in what mr coates said because that gandhi said is my real struggle because the penalty of sin he said i can't do anything about it what i have sinned i have sinned and it's totally left to the mercy of god and the presence of sin i hope that one day there would be no sin at all but he said the struggle with sin is very real and gandhi did many things when in his writings you'll notice how he struggled with this area of sin with his thoughts and actions and everything and uh, and i think what gandhi said was very true and i think many people struggle with that area and uh, we christians have taken it very lightly you know because we have taken the fact that in jesus christ everything is grace and grace alone and so we can't do anything we can go into the presence of god any time and ask forgiveness and then get up and keep going and coming back to him to receive forgiveness again 
and you know life seems to be quite easy that way and uh, that is not what the new testament christianity talks about new testament christianity is very clear that in jesus definitely our sins are forgiven and we have now an access into the most holy place but that is not the only purpose of god that salvation which comes in jesus is a transformational salvation it is a journey that starts with an encounter with god but definitely it doesn't end with that encounter it is not something that we talk about and say you know in such and such a year you know in uh, you know such, in a meeting where we went to or in a conversation with a friend i made a commitment to jesus he says that is not the end of the whole story the story continues and the story is very current story of experiencing the transforming power of god and that is what the writer paul is talking about here he says i struggle with this area and he says you know he the language that is used in romans chapter 7 is paul is genuinely talking about his own struggles is not imagining something but he's talking about a struggle and he says that this struggle is not that you know it is taken lightly by god but what god does is he has given us his holy spirit and that is why i think it is very important for us to have a right teaching about the holy spirit and so he says here he says here the law of the spirit gives life and has set us free from the law of sin and of death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh the law was not wrong paul is very clear the law is very good in fact he said earlier the law is good i agree that the law is good in fact uh, paul's teaching and the biblical teaching on the law is very important it doesn't say that the law is bad but the law had limitations it's like going to a doctor and uh, you have a, a sickness and the doctor tells you he does a diagnosis on what is wrong with you now the diagnosis is not something that heals anybody what he prescribes is what brings healing now what the law does is it is very it 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 basically gives us a diagnosis and it tells us also the standards of what is expected of us but it does not build in us that capacity the capacity to reach or meet the standard and that's why paul is struggling with it paul is talking about a real struggle because he said earlier it is i know the good itself does not dwell in me i have a desire to do good is in none of us start the day wanting to do that which is wicked but all of us know that what we desire is not we eventually do and the reason is that he says there is a struggle in us you know the law only tells us what is expected by god and where we have fallen short and the law when we confess to god also says that god is a forgiving god but it doesn't build us build the capacity in us to change 
And I've found that very often, even in my relationships with people in the organization where I worked and even outside, you know, there is an un, uh, you know, unthought through expectation that when we do some good to somebody and we think the fact that we did good to them will change them. For instance, in the office there where I worked, there were people who uh, would come late to the office and uh, and you know, instead of taking action on them, I would show grace and uh, tell them not to repeat it. They had valid reasons. Some of them you know, had reasons which I may not have accepted it as valid, but I, they always pleaded that they would change. And being in an institutional position, and even not only institutional, in our relationship with people, we know that we tend, we know we forgive people, definitely. But in that forgiveness, we also believe, because we have forgiven them, that they will have the capacity not to repeat it. And, uh, but that is perhaps we think that they would uh, you know, be shamed about some people, shame people, and they think by shaming them, they will not repeat. But that may be because of fear rather than actually any transformational reasons, or we think forgiveness actually changes people. Now, none of these things has the capacity to change. And sometimes we think gratitude, you know, will be that which can change people. You know, we do something good, even though they have done bad to us. And then we think our life of showing gratitude to them will transform them. But I think those kind of expectations are not real because it doesn't change. It doesn't change at all just because of these things. There's something in them. And that's what the Apostle Paul would say. He says, in me, you know, he says, there is a law that is at work in me, waging war. You know, he talks about a war that is in us between the good we want to do and the evil that we eventually do. And he says, we are totally helpless. We are totally helpless. And how often I have found that in many relationships, especially when it comes to relationships in marriage, when people come for counseling and they don't intend to destroy each other. But unfortunately, you will find that there are ways in which they, they do things in spite of. We had a young couple who, were, you know, called aside. We didn't meet them because of the lockdown. And they were going through, I don't know whether they're still going through, going through major problem, you know, major problem. In fact, she wanted to walk out of her marriage and uh, Selena and I are still not sure as to, you know, when they tell us about where the problem lies, uh, because they both have enough things against each other. And we think it is basically cultural background of both of them being different and all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, they would say, we want our marriage to work. You know, definitely they don't want to, you know, destroy the marriage. Uh, but the sad part is that in spite of the fact they want that their marriage to work, you know, they don't have the capacity to make it work. And uh, I have, you know, Selena and I have realized in our counseling experiences with people, suddenly things change, suddenly things change, not because they have made some great resolutions, 
uh, we remember a young couple who came to us, you know, going through major crisis. And the boy, I think, was uh, having problems with uh, pornographic material. And uh, he used to spend a lot of time on his laptop watching, uh, you know, after they've gone to bed, he will say he's got work and he will go back to his computer. And many times the wife had seen him spending a lot of time on pornographic, uh, you know, sites and uh, she couldn't handle it. And he was having an affair outside marriage and they came to us and, uh, you know, of course, he did not. In the beginning, he said he didn't even think. I took him out for tea one day to talk to him to find out. I couldn't just place my finger on what was wrong in this whole thing. And uh, and he actually said in his culture, you know, marrying more than one was not seen as wrong. He said many people, you know, not to say that he had to divorce. He didn't see a think of divorce at all. But definitely he didn't think one is final, you know, and uh, he had come to Christ, but he had not understood perhaps the Christian teaching on marriage. And she also comes from a strong Christian background and uh, in the sense of her, you know, upbringing. So for her, marriage was one wife, one woman, one, uh, one husband uh, till death do us part. For, her, for him, you know, there was no such uh, expectation. And uh, that was just uh, one part of it. But I think uh, as I talked to them, I realized that, uh, you know, apart from all those different ways of viewing things, you know, they both did not have the capacity, capacity to make things happen. And uh, we ended our conversations with them. They visited us many times, you know, regularly to share. And all the time it was about just pouring out and uh, both of them, uh, you know, giving us a list of things that happened since the last time they met with us, which made the marriage worse. And then suddenly, but we promised to pray for them. Selena and I prayed a lot for them. And suddenly, out of the blue, we saw them after some time. And I asked them, how are you doing? And they seemed to be so happy. Something changed. Something changed in them. And today they are doing so well in their marriage and uh, i must confess you know you know many times people have resolutions resolution one two three four five and uh, i find they can't make those resolutions but resolutions don't have the capacity to transform us and many times those resolutions make us feel more guilty than what was the situation. I know at the end of the year, you know, many people make resolutions. Now some of most people have given up making resolutions at the end of the year because they know it doesn't take too long before all those resolutions are broken uh, because they don't have a transformational capacity. They only say what we desire and what how serious we are about it, but it doesn't change the capacity to for us to be different and what we find here is that strong emphasis that paul is talking about is say that god gave us a new framework he says the law of the spirit gives who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death the other functioning that we had before which he calls it the law of sin 
it only condemns us and it makes us feel worse and that's what it says and it has sets us free from the law of sin and death is not talking about death in terms of eternal death or even physical death but it is destructive because sin has its fruit finally in actually bringing death and that is a new testament law understanding very clearly you know as we sin what happens is eventually what happens is something in us dies in our relationship with god and he says the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh and god did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us he says the forgiveness part was done but no more than that the righteous requirements of the law the law has righteous requirements and that righteous standards of the law would be fully met in us it's not that god will overlook our sins and our default as far as righteousness is concerned jesus told his disciples your righteousness must exceed that of the pharisees he was very clear he did not accept us from the requirements of the law but what he did was he says that the righteous jesus came into the world so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit what he says here is that now with the spirit in us we have another point of reference in each one of us earlier we had only that sinful nature and that's what he goes to goes on to explain in verse 5 those who live according to their flesh have their minds set on what flesh desires and he says but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires the mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to god it does not submit to god's law nor can it do so those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please god you however are not in the realm of the flesh but in the realm of the spirit he says earlier we lived in what he calls the realm of the flesh we lived you know we are not as what we think that we are independent the bible doesn't say that we are independent we are either slaves to our sinful nature or slaves to god there is no in between we live according to the ways of the world or we live according to the ways of god so what is very clear in this is that uh, what the bible says is that in this whole emphasis is that there are two things that are now operational as earlier we had no capacity we had no capacity because he says your mind was governed by the flesh you know the first thing he says is when we walk in the spirit 
there is a transformation of your mind. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that happens as long as our thinking continues to be shaped according to the way we used to think before. You know, and that is something that has to change. And each of us, you know, whether, whether irrespective of where we come from, our mind is shaped. Our mind is shaped, you know, like, uh, you know, before I came to Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, and coming from Chennai and uh, how we perceive things. And there's nothing wrong in everything but perception. But, you know, by which, you know, our cultures define for us a lot of things. And therefore, it has become so much a part of our life, how we look at things and how we perceive things. And then when we come to Jesus Christ, things change. Things change and we begin to look at things differently. And it all happens in the mind. And so he says here, the mind earlier was governed by the flesh and therefore it had no capacity to enjoy life. But he says the mind that is governed by the spirit so when the spirit upon is comes upon us, one of the first things that it does is that it affects our mind, our thinking. We need to ask ourselves the question constantly, how different is my thinking since I have experienced Christ? How, do, how does it affect my thinking? And that's what the spirit does. And he says, as long as our mind is governed by our sinful nature, he says it is hostile to God. It may, doesn't desire the things of God. It is hostile to God. <coughs> it is actually in enmity to God. That's what it says here. It says it is hostile to God. And uh, it says here that it is, uh, does, it is does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So what happens is when it hears the requirements of God, and in our heart, we desire what we read in the scripture as something that we want to do. The mind that is under the sinful nature is hostile, is hostile to God. It doesn't want us to do what we desire. So there is a battle there itself. So we find, you know, we, we desire God's way. We read the word of God and we desire it. But what happens is our sinful nature which controls our mind is not interested in doing God's law. In fact, it's hostile. It will do everything possible to ensure a disobedience to the scriptures. Everything possible to ensure it may come up with some realistic ways in which we can disobey God's word. And that is what happens here. And he says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God cannot please God because you know the sinful nature doesn't desire anything that God desires it may try and do some kind of a cosmetic action which we think is pleasing to God but it may not have at all any desire to please God Jesus condemned the Pharisees who in the outside did all those which for people watching them would have thought of them as very righteous people. Even when they prayed, you know, they were people who prayed, but 
Jesus said, when they pray, they want to make sure that everybody notices that they are praying. But they were people of prayer. Everybody knew the Pharisees as people of prayer. They knew the scripture. Jesus condemned them. Jesus said, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. You know, you are clean on the outside, dirty in the inside. Because that's what the sinful nature does. It pretends a righteousness which is not real. And so, so he says here that in the realm of the flesh, you cannot please God. And he says, you are, however, not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. But if Christ is in you, he says in verse 10, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. What happens in you? because of your sin in your body, your sinful nature is subject to this battle. But the spirit gives life because of the righteousness. The intention of the spirit is to ensure that we would live up to God's expectation. And that's why the spirit gives us life. And he goes on to say, and if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. This continued presence of the spirit is not just that the spirit makes us alive to God while we are on earth, but also what it does is this continued presence of the spirit eventually works in us to give us a body that is immortal. And therefore, he says in verse 12, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. The obligation, because we have been justified by Christ, it is not to the flesh, not to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will experience, you will experience a death that is something in which you will find there is no satisfaction in following God. You will experience it. You'll experience a dryness in you. You will experience a place where there is no desire for God. Because he says, if you live according to the flesh, you desire in your heart, but in your flesh is what controls you, controls your mind, your behavior. You will find that eventually you have a relationship with God in which you do not enjoy the purpose for Jesus, which Jesus came. He said, I have come to give you life, life that is abundant. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The spirit helps us to put to death that those which he calls the misdeeds of the body, because that's why the spirit has been given. The spirit helps you, wants you, so that the body doesn't lead you to doing things which he calls the misdeeds of the body. And if you do that, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led, not those who in whom the spirit dwells, but those who are directed by the spirit are the children of God. They will experience that new status 
because Jesus said, you know, in John chapter 1, John writes and says, to as many who believed in him, then gave he, they gave, he, gave life and gave the privilege to be called children of God. But we can have that status without enjoying that relationship. And so we find here that even those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him, that is by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. We have a relation, not that we have now got a new vocabulary in prayer in which we call God as Father. We know definitely that this work of God helps you to call God as Father from our heart. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are, co we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with the Spirit. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. He says, this is what the Spirit does. Spirit gives you a new sense of belonging to God, a new sense of belonging to God in which there is a transformational work taking place in our heart. Let me go on in verse 23. Not only he talks about creation groaning and then he says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit, that is, we are the children of God in whom the Spirit works. We groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our uh, eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship you know the process that has started will one day be completed when we enter into that family of god the redemption of our bodies for this in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is not hope at all who hopes for what they have already seen but if you hope for what we have not had we wait for it patiently. The Spirit helps us to hope. It helps us to know because the process has started and we wait for that day when the redemption of our bodies. And then he says another thing that the Spirit does, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not, and he's specifically talking about one weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God you know that's what the spirit does the spirit prays we he says we do not know what to pray for we may think we know it but the main thing is the Spirit intercedes so that what happens in our life is aligned to God's purpose for us. You know, and that is one important thing. And then he goes on to say, we know all things work, you know, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's what the Spirit does. Sometimes we go through situations where we don't understand but in all things, God will work for the good of those who love him according to his eternal purpose. And that's what the Spirit does. So the Spirit is very much 
uh, a part of the transformational process. Without the Spirit, the purposes of God will not be fulfilled in the salvation that was brought to us by Jesus Christ. Salvation is not the end. It is the beginning of this long process. And that's why the Spirit is very central. So if, uh, in conclusion, what I want to emphasize is that the essential work of the Spirit in the life of those who are believers in Jesus is to complete the work of perfection in us. That's what the Spirit of God has been given to us for. Of course, there are other things that happen. We will look at it later. But one central piece is the fact that the Spirit has been given for transforming us. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to find the attention that it has to find in the body of Christ. There's a lot of talk about other areas. And I like the emphasis in the New Testament, especially when the Spirit is talked about many times, it is prefaced by the word holy, Holy Spirit. And that is the character of the Spirit. That's the purpose. And uh, so Romans chapter 8 is that chapter where we see that centrality of the Spirit in the life of a believer. It's not about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's not about even the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But prior to the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the fact that the Spirit translates our experience of salvation into something in which we experience the ongoing presence of God in our life, by which we desire not only desire God's righteousness, but we also allow our mind and our will to make choices that will be prompted by the Holy Spirit. And eventually, we will live a life that is pleasing to God. Thank you for taking time out and being a part of this Bible study. Veritas Podcast is a podcast run by students and we upload every week on Wednesdays. If you find our content engaging and wish to know more, kindly subscribe to our podcast channel. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed by this initiative.